Yes, welcome to the Make America Greta Again podcast. I'm sorry. Welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Welcome back, episode 20. So glad to have you here. I guess I need to start off most of all by saying thank you so much for listening to the last episode uh, on our country's issues with Iran. I think that it probably set a record for the most downloads in the first couple of days, and I definitely got more feedback from that than any episode I've ever done. I got so many messages um, just saying thanks for laying it out this way, thanks for making it easy to understand. And I just want to say thank you. It's amazing to see how this podcast continues to grow. Thank you so much for sharing it with your friends, sending it to family. I have a lot of people who say that they've sent it to family members and that this has been a way uh, to get through to family members who they may not be able to talk to about these things otherwise, and that hopefully we're reaching more and more people. And that has been my goal with this podcast is to reach as many people as possible and and to win those people over um, just to our principles, uh, that as many people as possible would see that Peace, property rights, and free markets are the best possible way that we can live our lives, the best ways to conduct a society, and the best way to, to interact with your neighbor. And, and in that way, everybody wins. And right now, this podcast is winning, and I can't thank you enough for that. So I am running on a little bit of limited time. I may have to kind of rush it up pretty quick here at the end, but I wanted to take some time to talk about climate change. And I've been meaning to do an episode on climate change for a little while. And it first came up, uh, I guess, what, late last summer when Greta Thunberg uh, was, I guess, kind of introduced to the world. And she stood up in front of the UN and she told them, uh, how dare you? You have crushed my childhood You've ruined my dreams with your empty words and your promises that mean nothing. You haven't done enough to save the world. And now we are staring down an absolute economic and ecological disaster. And it's all the UN's fault because they didn't pass the right laws and charge the right taxes and do all of the things that we are learning should have been done. And to be honest with you, I didn't get around to doing this episode. Some other things came up. You know, we talked about impeachment and then the stuff with Iran happened. And it just kind of got bumped down the road. And then, of course, she came back up in the news a little bit more in December when Time Magazine named her the person of the year. And this kind of thing just keeps really keeps coming up. You know, we, we've had concerns about the climate passed around for 40 years now. So honestly, when you think that maybe I put this podcast off for a couple months. Luckily, we know that it's still evergreen because we were in the 70s and we were worried about whether the earth was cooling too fast. And then quickly, as we kind of went into the 80s and and into the 90s, the concern became more about acid rain and greenhouse gases and whether the earth was warming too fast. And then we got told as these things happened, um, you know, Al Gore promised us that the ice caps were going to melt by 2014 and that, that didn't happen. And then we had more catastrophes planned and that things are supposed to be getting worse. And This kind of thing just keeps getting brought up over and over again. And so this issue is something that we have not heard the last of. Uh, Greta Thunberg is someone that we have not heard the last of. And I want to push back on kind of that narrative a little bit during this episode, but more so than that, I also want to take some time just to talk about the persuasion that's at work 
when people talk about these things. And one of my, my main source for this episode has been Scott Adams. And you've heard me talk about Scott Adams before. His book, Win Bigly, is absolutely amazing. If you know anybody who is absolute, just hair on fire, Trump is Hitler, there's a white supremacist in the White House, those kind of people... Uh, Win Bigly is the best possible book that you can give to them. And uh, if you listen to my interview that I did on Call Me Ignorant, where I was interviewed, you know, I was telling Stephen there that I was one of those kind of never Trumpers. I thought that Trump was the absolute worst thing to happen to possibly the right and, and definitely to the evangelicals in the right. And I was absolutely dead set against him being president. And I was, I feared that this was an absolute disaster. And reading that book, was able to change my perspective on him and really formed a lot of uh, the basis for the things that this show is built upon. And it doesn't mean that you have to agree with him. It doesn't mean that you even have to like him, uh, but it does help you see a little bit of the method to the madness, a little bit of the strategy behind why he does some of the things he does. And Scott Adams has kind of continued on through that and uh, in selling that book and in talking about persuasion. And he's one of my favorite people to use as a source because you know you're you're you have a decent shot of getting something uh, from him that is as fair as he can possibly put out. And Scott Adams admits that he is a Bernie Sanders leftist. That he thinks we should have free college for everybody. We should have free health care for everybody. Probably free housing or something along those lines. But that he says that Bernie is not radical enough. And so that tells you what kind of person you are dealing with when you talk to Scott Adams, just kind of his perspective and where he's coming from. So he would generally lean to the left on a lot of those things, but he was able to see in his work with Win Bigley and the stuff that he's done after that, um, a lot of the ways in which Trump or whoever is on the right has been doing better in certain areas at the persuasion than the left has been. And so he's been really critical of the Democratic Party and stuff like that. And again, that's kind of the side that he comes from, but he's very critical of them because he sees a lot of the mistakes they make. And in this climate change discussion, he came out and most of the the videos I'm looking at are from about 10 months ago. um, So like mid to early 2019. And he said that he did not have an opinion on climate change yet, that he wasn't sure who to believe. And what Scott Adams has said is that he thinks there's a lot of bad persuasion on both sides. And he's kind of looking at this climate change debate and he's kind of saying, I, I don't believe either of you. These are these are both just bad arguments and, and a bad means of trying to bring people over to your side. And of course, you've heard some of my opinions before. And I just want to tell you up front that in this episode, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about climate change. I'm going to push back on the narrative a little bit, but one of the main things I want to do is just talk about the persuasion on both sides and kind of share what I've learned from Scott Adams. And um, I'll share I'll share the material of his that I use in the show notes. So if you want to check those things out for yourself and some of my other sources, then you can do that. But ultimately, I'll just, I'll just ruin the ending. If you're just here to hear whether the answer is yes or no on devastating climate change, like I've said on many other things on the show, it's complicated. And ultimately, we don't really know. No one really knows. This is a very, very, very complex issue. And there are almost infinite variables that could change the climate of the earth. 
and could change the way that the earth reacts um, or the earth's climate reacts to the changes that it's going through. So I don't have a straight answer for you, but I do want to talk about the persuasion that's at work and what we can learn from the way that people are talking about this. And, and hopefully it will help you as you talk to other people and bring them over to your side on just about anything. So I uh, do want to give a quick warning before we get into this. Um, there is a little bit of language in this episode. I try to always warn you before that happens, just in case you like to listen with the kids in the car or anything like that. I would consider it to be fairly mild language, probably like a PG-13, but there's just a section here where I am repeating some of Scott Adams' work and some of the examples and the words he's using, and it just seems silly for me to go out of my way so far to go around it. So we're going to use those four-letter words, and that's going to be okay. Just wanted to make sure that I give you a heads up on that. I like to take the Tom Woods approach on this, that some people are fine with swearing, but just about everybody is fine with not swearing. So it's easier to try to err on the side uh, to be safe so we can get as many people in and listening as possible. So first up, why Greta Thunberg? Why is a was she 15, 16 year old Swedish girl who has dropped out of school now to protest climate change? Why is she being used as kind of this poster child or you know this symbol of climate change awareness? And someone asked me on my Facebook page uh, way back when this first happened and, and when the how dare you speech happened, they said, why would they use a child? Why are they stooping to this level to put a child out in front of the whole world to push their political cause, to, to push something um, for their political gain? Well, there's a couple reasons. Most of all, I think it was Michael Malice that pointed out that the idea of, of raising a child up like this from a almost from a religious standpoint, it, it's almost like this Messiah type imagery, right? That you have a child, that this person is, you know, somewhat unblemished and hasn't been damaged from the world. And, and it's kind of like this almost Christ-like picture of a child who's been sent to save the world from whatever danger it's facing. And so that kind of imagery really does resonate with a lot of people, especially if you look at it from that angle. And whether or not you're religious you're still likely familiar enough with the religion to be able to see that type of thing. And one of the other things about it is just that all of us look back at children and we look back at those kids or we look back at our memories of ourselves with the knowledge that we have now. And we look back at those, those kids and we say, man, I wish I had known then what I know now right? There's a song about that. I, I wish I knew what I knew now when I was younger. And th there's a lot of truth to that. And, and we can all relate to that. We've all learned things. If you could go back and relive your life with the brain of an adult and go back and go through your childhood, most of us feel like we would do a whole lot of things differently. And in the realm of politics, it's very touching and it's, it's very inspiring and it really can mobilize a lot of people and, and encourage a lot of people when they look back and they see a child quote unquote knowing what they know now. People can look back at that and they, had, they could say, man, you know, when I was in high school, when I was 15 or 16, I was just worried about chasing girls or, you know, I was just worried about making the varsity basketball team or whatever your hobby may have been that was probably kind of childish because you were a child. 
Um, Instead, they can project onto those things and say, wow, like this is someone who is young and instead of doing the things that young people do, they're investing their time in a political cause that I believe in. And so that's very inspiring for a lot of those people and, and really draws them in to give this child their support. And one of the other things with that is it's also really hard to criticize a child because like I said, we all know that when we were kids, we were naive. We were dumb. We didn't know the things that we know now. So when anybody jumps in to criticize this girl, they're immediately met with, how dare you? She's just a child. She's doing her best. And so it kind of gives this method of encouraging people to take any of the good that she's giving and any of the good from the things that she's saying and you kind of have to ignore all of the bad because it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right for a grown adult to be yelling about what some 15, 16-year-old girl is saying to the UN, right? So it's a very convenient way to push that narrative out there and to avoid any of the pushback from that narrative. Now, obviously, we live in very polarized times, and there were still plenty of people who made fun of her. There were still plenty of people who pushed back on that and called her ignorant or whatever, but when you're talking about the average person, the general public, people are going to be very hesitant to go after a child in that way because they, they don't want to feel like they're picking on someone. Um, you know, go pick on someone your own size. Don't pick on this kid, right? And on top of that, she had in her Twitter bio, and it's come out that she had Asperger's and that she was um, had obsessive compulsive disorder as well. So even more, you've got kind of these, I guess I would call it like a mild disability, which gives her even more a little bit of protection from that criticism. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Asperger's or not. Typically, kids with Asperger's are very, very intelligent. Um, maybe, maybe all of them are. I don't know. I've never, I've never heard of a dumb kid with Asperger's, but maybe if you have, you can write me and let me know. I'm not sure. But typically, they're very, very intelligent, but they also have this ability to lock in on one thing. And I think that it's very well possible that this isn't just an act, that this really may be something that she stresses night and day over. And this could be something that is genuinely causing her a lot of distress and a lot of pain and, and a lot of anguish because a lot of times people that have Asperger's do focus in on that one thing. And like I said, they tend to be very, very intelligent. So if someone is coaching her up or if, you know, she's decided on her own that she believes that climate change is a threat, then it's very possible that she's doing hours and hours of research and spending large amounts of her day thinking about this. And it could genuinely be driving her almost crazy. I think back, there was a guy that I went to college with that had Asperger's and he would come into my dorm room and I would be, you know, playing a game or working on my homework or something. And um, he would come in and he would tell me about a video game he had been playing. And he would start at the beginning and he would say, you know, you walk in and this is the cutscene that plays and, you know, you're in a castle and there's a princess and you have to rescue this. And then this guy takes the princess and you go after her. And so he says this and you say this and this other person says this and then you go after them. And we go into the first level and you have to go to the left and then you have to go to the right. And then there's this guy here and he would walk me through and a lot of times, admittedly, I would kind of zone out a little bit because it was he was going on for a long time. And 
45 minutes to an hour later, a lot of times I, I kind of pop in from being zoned out and realize that he's still talking about this game. And he would go through from the very beginning of the first level and he would go through the entire campaign of the game and he would tell me every single enemy that he fought and every boss that he beat and what happened in each cutscene and what happens when you get to the final battle and what they say and how the game ends. And he knew all of it. And it was incredible. And so I don't know anything about Greta Thunberg personally, but I do think it's very possible that she may share a lot of those same traits, that this may be something that she is incredibly passionate about and does cause her a great amount of grief. And so for that, I try not to jump on her too much. Um, I try not to push back on her too hard and instead kind of offer, uh, I guess, my, my empathy instead of just calling her, you know, a stupid child or a plant or an actor or anything like that. One of the other things I do want to also want to point out is that there's got to be somebody behind her. I don't know who, I didn't do the research because I honestly don't really care that much, but there's somebody who's got to be funding this, right? Somebody is paying to take her around on this yacht all over the world and to visit these places. And somebody was able to set her up in front of the UN so that she was able to get a time slot to give a speech to these people so that this could go viral and this could go all over the world. This doesn't just happen by accident. Trust me, I've, I've been asking the UN to let me speak for years and I have, you know, some how dare you's of my own to give them and they, they don't want to hear it. They're, they're not setting me up. But um, the, the same thing happened after the Parkland shooting uh, with uh, uh, there was David Hogg and there was um, it was the Latin American girl that was with him a lot. And they were organized. There were adults who came in and organized their marches and organized their rallies and helped him get spots on CNN and MSNBC so that he could talk about gun control. And, and they were coached and they were given instructions on how to, to form this movement. And so I, there is no doubt in my mind that there is somebody with Greta helping her out, helping her to do these things and organize these things to make it have as much impact as possible. So that's all that I think I have to say about Greta, but I did want to just talk a little bit about where she's probably coming from and to just kind of offer a little bit of empathy for her to say that, you know, it's very well possible that this isn't just an act for her. Now, Scott Adams talks a lot about persuasion. And one of the things that he says, like I mentioned earlier, is that he thinks that both sides are giving some very bad persuasion in the climate change argument. And that one of the kind of setting up a lot of the um, the narrative from typically the left, um, I will we'll just say the left here, you know who I'm talking about when we talk about people who are worried about climate change. And I tweeted a screenshot from one of Scott Adams' videos where he made this little chart and he's talking about how one of the persuasion problems in the climate change argument is that both sides are talking to each other in their own language, right? So the left is using the left's language to try to bring the right to their side on this climate change debate. And the right is talking in the right's language to try to bring the left over. And people just don't hear it well. And I've talked about this in this show before as well, that, for example, someone on the left has the perspective, which is, I would say, a reasonable perspective. They would say something like, this country has a lot of money, and we are a very wealthy country, and there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to find a way to pay for the homeless to have homes and to pay for everyone to have health care and to pay for everyone to have a good education because we have a lot of money. There should be enough to go around. These things should be possible. Okay, that's a fair assessment of the world. Okay, I think that that's a reasonable thing. Now, the reaction that you get from the right to something like that is 
instead of being kind of emotionally appealing, the right tends to be very fact-based, right? You got your Ben Shapiro saying facts don't care about your feelings. And someone on the right is going to respond to that and say, yes, public education is too expensive. Not everybody can have it. Um, there's not enough money to go around for everybody. Healthcare should be only for the people who can afford it. And there's not enough money to go around. And those things are too expensive and they'll never work. And that's just the end of the story. You've got to give up on it. And so you have one side talking about this emotional appeal to these issues. And then the other side is just stuck just in the bare cold facts. And like I've said in this podcast before, is you have to be able to find common ground with people and to meet them in that spot. And so when we talk about things, like in this example, in healthcare, instead of just saying like it's too expensive and it's not going to work and it's dumb, that we talk about the way that when the government intervenes in these things and, and tries to even the score for certain people, that it actually hurts the people that it's trying to help the most. And so now we're not just talking about facts and figures and we're not just telling them, sorry, kid, there's not enough money, it's never going to work, but we're actually showing them that, for example, in healthcare, when government steps in, oftentimes the wait is longer and the service is worse and more people are harmed than helped by it. And so much the same way in this climate change debate, you've got the right and the left talking to each other in terms that the other doesn't understand. And so um, if you've got a chance, feel free to go to the show notes and, and click the tweet of mine that I posted with a screenshot from Scott Adams. And he's got a chart and he's got three of the main arguments that you know, climate change alarmists or, or people who do believe that climate change is a genuine threat. And he's got three of their main arguments and how younger people or journalists look at those arguments and how someone who might be older or someone who has business experience will look at those arguments. So the first thing that he lays out is a hockey stick graph. You've got a graph, and if you can picture the hockey stick in your mind, it is generally pretty flat, maybe a, a gently sloped up or down. And then all of a sudden, in kind of this recent memory, the curve completely swoops up to make the bottom of the hockey stick. And... When you have something like that, in this case, you know, you're talking about the weather or the, the temperature, the average temperature of the earth, then you look at that graph and what he says is when you are young or you're a journalist, what you see is, wow, that's pretty persuasive. I can see right in front of me that that's going down and that it was trending flat or down and then all of a sudden it curves up, which means something big has changed and there, there's a problem that needs fixed. Instead, the word that he uses if you are older or you have business experience is, that's bullshit. So anyone who's been subject to a lot of these sales pitches or this kind of thing can see that someone is tweaking the numbers or someone is probably doing something dishonest to make that graph change so drastically. That generally, a lot of data seems to be a little bit more predictable than that or a little bit more... Um, rational and that it's not so simple as things just changed recently so we need to make a change to to fall in line now it doesn't mean that it's not true he's just talking about the persuasion of it so it looks persuasive to young people or journalists but to older people or people with business experience they say no this looks like bullshit i don't buy it the second example he gives is prediction models our prediction models show that at the rate things are going blank is going to happen Climate change, you know, the prediction models show that within 100 years, our climate is going to be almost unlivable. And a young person or a journalist 
says, huh, that sounds pretty persuasive. On the other hand, an older person or someone with business experience, like he says, says, that's bullshit. They understand that you can put whatever you want into a computer program and you can set the variables the way that you want them. And the variables do have to be set in a certain way, right? You can't just let a computer program run on its own. You have to give it some kind of starting point and some kind of trajectory. You have to give it something to predict off of. And so if our prediction models show blank, as a business person or an older person, all they see is that's bullshit. You're just trying to sell me something and I'm not buying it. Those are your predictions, your models, not mine, not someone I trust. Once more, not saying that this proves or disproves climate change as a threat, but just saying that it's poor persuasion on the part of the left. And finally, the third example he gives is that 97% of experts agree that blank. In this case, 97% of scientists agree that climate change is an existential threat to human life on this planet. And once again, you got your young people, your journalists saying, wow, 97%, that's pretty impressive. And your, your older people or people with more business experience will say, that's bullshit. 97% of people don't tend to agree on anything, let alone something as complicated and confusing and massive as climate change. And it doesn't mean without a doubt that climate change is or isn't a problem, but he's just talking again about the persuasion of that argument. That just telling someone that 97% of people agree on something doesn't change anything. And once more, people with business experience know that a lot of times those kind of surveys, they can be rigged. For example, hopefully this is something that you've never heard of before, not really political, but just interesting to me at least. Uh, bacon didn't used to be just considered a breakfast food. Bacon was just a general meat that you would eat with whatever meal. And one of the bacon companies, don't remember who it was, but for one of their ad campaigns, they called up a bunch of doctors and they asked the doctor, which would be a better breakfast? This light, small breakfast, like, a, like something, it was something very small, like a piece of toast with butter and a glass of water or something like that. Or this big, healthy meal with bacon and eggs and a full plate of protein. And the doctors would say, well, obviously the better breakfast would be the one with bacon, the one that has all the protein and stuff in it. And they, they repeated this over and over again. And finally, they ran the ad and they said, 90% of doctors agree that a breakfast with bacon is the healthiest way to start your day. And that is how bacon was kind of born or set into place as a breakfast food, as a staple of your breakfast meal. And much in the same way, if you survey the right people, you can get 97% of people to agree on something when it's actually more complicated than that. And once more, Scott Adams clarifies that this doesn't prove or disprove climate change. It just says that this is bad persuasion, that this is not going to bring the people from the other side over to your point of view. So Scott Adams kind of talks about this and he says, you know, he's still not convinced. Um, he also throws out that uh, a lot of the people who say that climate change isn't happening talk about how the average temperature of the United States hasn't really changed all that much over the last like 100 years or something like that. 
And one of the other things that they use is we have a lot of satellites that have been put up into the atmosphere that are measuring the temperature and tracking these things. And they've been up since, I think, 1997. And so they look at a lot of the data for those. And the data for those show that the world is not warming. But one of the things that he clarifies is that in the concern for climate change, the biggest rise in temperature is not necessarily going to be in the center of the earth, but that most of it is going to take place at the poles where the the ice caps are and in the ocean. So when one person says that global warming is a, a giant threat to the ice caps and to the ocean, and those are the places we're going to see it the most, for someone else to come back and say, well, I'm not seeing those results showing in the United States, which is fairly close to the center of the world and on land, or I'm also not seeing those changes in the stratosphere or wherever it is that these satellites sit in their orbit. So that's one of the things that he's pointed out that one of the arguments from the right that is seemingly kind of dishonest and you know really kind of misses the point because it's not arguing with the right data. So we know what both sides are trying to tell us. We hear that loud and clear, and as Scott Adams points out, neither side is doing a very good job of pulling us over to their side. But how do we get to the truth? How do we know if this is something that we genuinely need to be worried about or not? Well, Scott Adams, he reaches out and he interviews a guy. I can't remember his first name, but uh, his last name is Shiva. Uh, He's got a doctorate in several fields of science. He kind of gives his qualifications. And Scott Adams does a really good job of pressing back on Dr. Shiva about a lot of the conventional claims and a lot of the things that people talk about in the debate about climate change. Probably the biggest thing that I can give you from this interview is that climate change is the one area of discussion where the academic world has essentially told the scientific world the results of their studies before they've ever happened. That they have decided, the academics have decided that climate change is real, that it is happening, that it is an existential threat to human life on this planet. There is no denying it that the science has been settled and that we absolutely have to make massive changes to our economy and massive changes to our industry and massive changes to the way the world works or else plenty of us are going to be dead within 100 years and that that we only have a few years now to take action. Now, as a scientist, that's fine as a hypothesis. But when you talk about the scientific method, the scientific method says that you, you come up with your hypothesis, you guess this, and then you test it. Then you try to see if the things that you think are happening are really true. And what's happened in this climate change debate is a lot of times they will take any of the results to the tests that show that they're right, any of the results that show that the earth is warming or that CO2 levels are rising or whatever it is. But then if something comes back and it doesn't prove what they've already decided to be right, then they they throw that data out. They find an excuse to say, well, this doesn't count or this was abnormal, so we're not going to count it. And Dr. Shiva explains that because the academic world has taken over this in such a way that scientists have sort of lost their freedom to tell the truth in this. And that if they do come out and they do press back against the narrative of climate change, if they do press back against what the world has already been told is happening, then they lose their funding. They lose their jobs. A lot of them have written editorials or whatever for various media, and they've lost their posts there. 
Tom Woods does this interview with the, the one of the founders of Greenpeace. And this guy has been removed from the list of Greenpeace founders because he's come out and disagreed with a lot of the things that these green companies and these green activist groups are saying. And he explains to Tom Woods that you know electric power is great for small cars and electric power is great for small consumers, but that it's not going to cut it when you come to when it comes to um, moving mass amounts of freight and doing the kind of things that we use semi trucks to do and probably trains as well. And that fossil fuels are an important part of our economy and our lives. And if you were to completely do away with fossil fuels, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez suggests in the Green New Deal, then with the, the size of the world that we have, you're going to end up cutting down all the trees and running short on wood in no time. That these kind of things have dangerous, drastic effects. And to just go into them blindly or to go into them where all the research has already been decided before it's actually performed, the results of that could be devastating. And most of us know that science has been known often to change over time. You know, off the top of my head, I can think of nutrition, right? That it used to be when the FDA made the food pyramid, you know, one of the things they used to tell people was you need to stay away from fats. You know, fats are bad. Um, you know, lean more towards sugar. Sugar is okay. And then we find out decades later that sugars actually aren't all that good for you and that fats aren't so bad. You know, you used to be able to eat the egg white, but not the egg yolk. The egg yolk was bad for you. And then it was, you know, the egg yolk was bad and not the egg white. And, and you, they flipped back and forth several times and eggs were good and then eggs were bad and then eggs were good and then eggs were bad. And I, I don't know where we are on that right now. And the same thing happens in fitness science. They're still learning and they're still changing their opinion every couple of years about what type of exercise is most helpful for you to lose weight or what type of exercise is most, he most healthy to get you in shape. And, you know, they used to think that you needed to do a certain amount of cardio before you did any heavy lifting, that that, that would help get your heart in the right place and, and help you burn the right amount of calories. And now they're finding out that that's not necessarily true. And that's okay, because part of science is just going off of the best understanding of things that we have at the moment. The earth used to be flat. The sun used to revolve around the earth. These are things that people believed. And when they got more information, they learned to change it. And unfortunately, one of the things that, that Dr. Shiva explains in this interview, and Scott Adams does push back against him pretty hard, and one of the things Dr. Shiva explains is that the science is still undetermined. That we're not sure if the climate is changing or not. We're not sure if the temperature is rising or not. One of the really interesting things that he pointed out was that cirrus clouds can actually expand and retract, almost like the pupil of your eye does when it wants to bring in more or less light, that cirrus clouds can do this to regulate the heat on the earth. And that when we run these climate models, trying to forecast what the temperatures are going to do, one of the things that they don't take into account is what those cirrus clouds are going to do. And he explains that it's very well possible that if our Earth is raising in temperature, that those cirrus clouds can actually change their shape and change their form in a way that dissipates that heat better and actually helps work this amazing ecological thermostat 
to continue keeping the temperature at the right place for what the earth needs. Bob Murphy does an interview with a lady, her name is really hard to pronounce, I'm not even going to attempt it, but one of the things that she explains is that there's not even enough power in the current supercomputers to run the kind of forecasts and projections that they really need to run to get an accurate reading on these things. Like I mentioned earlier, there are almost infinite variables and that those forecasts that those computers run need to take into account the temperature of the water and the temperature of the air in between and all of the water droplets in the clouds and that trying to combine all of those things into, you know, into ones and zeros that the computer can run and process and forecast, the, the computers just aren't powerful enough yet. So when we look at a lot of these forecasts that tell us that the temperature is going to rise, we are relying on way too many guesses that someone has had to fill in for the computer because it doesn't have the power to try to figure up a lot of those things on its own. And if you're trying to run a forecast, you are absolutely at the mercy of the person who is giving that forecast a place to start from. I guess the, the final thing that Dr. Shiva pointed out was that climate science wasn't really a thing until a lot of this panic over climate change happened. And suddenly grants start rolling in for these types of things and uh, the funding changed and most of the funding now comes from the federal government instead of being shared around from a lot of places like it was before. And so now, in order to get your funding, you have to be sure that you're saying the right thing so that no one cancels you. And of course, if you say, uh, I studied climate change and it's not a big deal, well, no one's going to give you more money to study it because even if you were telling the truth, that kind of settles it and that tells us that we don't need to spend a whole lot of time studying it anymore. So the, the funding encourages people to go into that and it encourages people to come up with the quote-unquote correct conclusions, which as we've learned before, even the correct conclusions that science comes to can sometimes change. And uh, Dr. Shiva kind of jokes at the end of it, and he says, I encourage all of the listeners to go into climate change. Make your own nonprofit, make your own think tank, because there's lots of money out there to be given. And essentially what happened was a new sector of science was created to which people were able to flock to whether or not they had any of the credentials to do it. But if you're the first one or one of the first ones to go into a new industry, well, then you get to pretty much claim that you're an expert on that. And he said that that's one of the ways that people like Al Gore or people like Greta Thunberg can stand before the UN, can stand before our federal government or whoever, and warn us of the catastrophe that is imminent if we don't use our money and use our economy in a way that they see fit. It's also interesting that one of the other things that they talk about is that when you look at something like the Green New Deal, that it's not just about climate change, but that it's going to absolutely rearrange the way that our economy looks for poor people and for women and for minorities, and that this is also going to bring all of them, lift them out of poverty or lift them up from whatever oppression they are getting from our current system. And as I think it was Michael, Ma I can't remember if it was Michael Malice or Tom Woods that pointed out, like if there were an asteroid headed toward the earth, and we knew that we had two months to live or something along those lines, wouldn't your main concern be the asteroid? 
wouldn't you want to just take a break for a minute and say, okay, you know, maybe we can deal with minimum wage after this, but right now we just need to survive. But instead, what happens with a lot of these climate change proponents is that we're going to solve climate change. Oh, and by the way, we're going to solve whatever systemic oppression that we believe is out there. We're going to save women. We're going to save minorities. We're going to save whoever we think needs saving while we save the world from the climate. Um, just a couple quick other things while I'm thinking about it. Uh, interesting things to think about. Michael Malice points out that when you talk about the climate warming, we also don't necessarily know that that's not a good thing. When you look at the warmest places in the world, when you look along the equator, that's where the rainforest is. That's where often places you have the most life and the, the most variety of plants and animals and different species existing together. And when you move toward the poles, you know, what have you got? Like penguins, polar bears, and Santa Claus. I think that's about it. So again, I don't know the, the scientific argument behind that, but that is something um, Michael Malice is kind of a, a zoology nerd, and um, he knows more about that than I do. And I do think that that's an interesting argument that um, we don't even necessarily know that a warming climate would absolutely be bad for us. But even with all of these arguments that I've given kind of against the climate change narrative, even looking back at a lot of the times that they were wrong before, that the world wasn't actually dealing with global cooling in the 70s and then into the 80s and 90s, we weren't, the acid rain wasn't as much of a problem as we expected. And then the ice caps didn't really melt in 2014, like Al Gore told us that they would. And, and now, you know, we're looking at 2030 as the, the next big year for us to have to change things or else. Even if all of those things were wrong, kind of think back to the parable of the boy who cried wolf, eventually there was a wolf. So even if they were wrong before, what if climate change is real this time? What if it really is happening and we really are recognizing it now? And even if it's not, what would it hurt to try to cut down our pollution a little bit? What would it hurt to try to make our planet a cleaner and safer place? I mean, wouldn't it be best for our planet and for all of us just to do that anyway? Just to be safe? You know, if we're right about climate change, then we definitely have to do something about it. And if we're wrong about climate change, what's the worst that could happen? Well, I've got an article here from Mises.org. Uh, this was run back in the end of September. On Monday, celebrity climate activist Greta Thunberg delivered a speech to the UN Climate Action in New York. She demanded drastic cuts in carbon emissions of more than 50% over the next 10 years. Now, she filed a legal complaint with the UN demanding that five countries... Argentina, Brazil, France, Germany, and Turkey more swiftly adopt larger cuts in carbon emissions. The complaints are based on a 1989 agreement, Convention on the Rights of the Child, which Thunberg claims the human rights of children are being violated by the top high carbon emissions in the named countries. The article says here, Thunberg seems unaware, however, that in poor and developing countries, carbon emissions are a more a lifeline to children than they are a threat. The article explains that, you know, it's one thing that France and Germany you know, would be criticized for their carbon emissions. I mean, they are fairly well-off countries and they are fairly well-developed and, and there's not nearly as much poverty in those countries as there are a lot of the other ones. And 
I'll link to this article in the show notes so you can read it, but basically what it explains is that a lot of these poor countries depend on fossil fuels to lift them out of poverty. They depend on fossil fuels to lift their economies out of third world status. In recent decades, countries like Turkey, Malaysia, Brazil, Thailand, and Mexico, once poverty-stricken third world countries, are now middle-income countries. It says here, moreover, in these countries, most of the population will in coming decades likely achieve what we consider to be first world standards of living in the 20th century. And they put in a couple graphs here to show how these countries are growing and how these countries are coming out, but they have to have these fossil fuels. They have to have a way to run their industry and to run their manufacturing equipment. And, you know, one of the things that we don't talk about is how much cleaner emissions have gotten as our technology has improved, how much better we have gotten at extracting a lot of these fossil fuels from the ground and refining them into something that we can use. In the 90s and early 2000s, they were talking about how we were going to run out of fossil fuel in our lifetime. And now that talk has stopped because technology has improved and we are so much more efficient at using it. And we are so much better at keeping these things clean. So even when you look at cars that burn gasoline, you're going to get much better gas mileage and much cleaner emissions from a newer car than one would even from 20 or 30 years ago. And so if you look at some of the things that Greta Thunberg is demanding, and a lot of these people are demanding from some of these poor third world countries and countries that have barely climbed out of third world status, to cut their emissions, to cut their use of fuel is going to push them back into poverty. And even if they're in conditions that we may think are less than ideal, you know, maybe it was bad that this six-year-old kid had to work in the factory to help his family afford something to eat. It's going to be much worse when you take that job away and suddenly they're looking at something like sex slavery. These are real problems that people in these countries face. And it's very easy for us to look at them and to think, that's disappointing. That's a travesty. That's unacceptable. But what we often don't realize is that when governments step in, when people interfere with the free market, even with the best intentions, even with reducing pollution, even with stopping child labor, oftentimes they're hurting these people and they're putting them in worse situations than they would have been in otherwise. So instead of going after these countries, especially, especially these poor third world countries or these countries that are barely climbing out of third world status, instead of going after them and putting those people out of work, taking their wages away, pushing them back into starvation, we need to let them grow. We need to let them thrive. We need to let them continue making and selling goods that pay them wages and that help the rest of the world when we buy the things that they've made. And as they grow, and as their economies thrive more and they climb out of third world status, then they can look to countries like the U.S. where not only are we learning to do things more efficiently, we're doing things with lower emissions. We're doing things more cleanly. We're reducing pollution. We're finding ways to cut back on those things. So if you're trying to push on anybody to stop climate change, the rich countries are the least of your worries because they're putting out the least amount of pollution. And these poor countries are the ones who will be hurt the most because you're taking their economy out from under them. And that's part of the problem here. As this article points out, the question that does matter is this. 
if the world implements drastic Thunbergian climate change policies, will the policies themselves do more harm than good? The answer may very well not be in the climate activist's favor. After all, the costs of climate change must be measured compared to the costs of climate change policy. If economic growth is stifled by climate policy and 100 million people lose out on clean water and safe housing as a result, that's a pretty big cost. After all, the benefits of cheap energy, most of which is provided by fossil fuels, are already apparent. Life expectancy continues to go up and is expected to keep making the biggest gains in the developing world. Child mortality continues to go down. For the first time in history, the average Chinese peasant isn't forced to scratch out a substance-level existence on a rice paddy. Thanks to cheap electricity, women in middle-income countries don't have to spend their days cleaning clothes by hand without washing machines. Children don't have to drink cholera-tainted water. It's easy to sit before a group of wealthy politicians and say, how dare you for not implementing one's desired climate change policy. It might be slightly harder to tell a Bangladeshi t-shirt factory worker that she's had it too good and we may need to put the brakes on economic growth. For her own good, of course. You see, even if climate change is the ultimate problem, if you've learned one thing from listening to this podcast, it's that when outside forces, when governments step in to make changes to save something or someone, that thing that they tried to save, that person that they tried to save, is often the one that's hurt the most by this. So I'm not arguing that we shouldn't take better care of the planet. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't keep trying to become more efficient and more clean and more green. But I am saying that maybe government isn't the best way to do that. So if we can learn anything about the climate change discussion, hopefully we can learn how to talk to each other a little bit better, how to make one another understand the things that we're talking about. But also hopefully we can learn about the way that we're going to be hurting people if we jump into this too early. And we learn about how science is kind of being shorted by not being allowed to truly observe and study this issue, to understand whether or not we have a problem, and then to genuinely try to figure out what to do about it. And if it is an issue, which we don't know because it's very complicated. But if it is, then there's got to be something better that we can do than to simply tax the rich and to destroy the poor. Hey, I'm out of time. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for sharing it. If you like it, feel free to send it to a friend, take a screenshot and post it on your Instagram. Let people know that this is your favorite political podcast and that we are doing great things on this show. As always, you can follow me on twitter.com slash garrettagain, facebook.com slash garrettagain. You can support me on Bitbacker. My name on there is Garrettagain. And you can email me, garrettagain at pm.me. As always, Garrett just has one R in it. And I want to thank you so much for listening. And I can't wait to come back with another episode and we can find some more to talk about. Until then... Stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here.